Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Every year, New Zealand industry sends 103,000 tonnes of food waste to landfill. Some 60% of that food is going, going to landfill is edible. Burying food, often still in its plastic and foil packaging, is an environmental disaster. It needlessly, needlessly contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and squanders the resources used to produce and transport that food, including water, land, energy, labour and capital. If that sounds outrageous to you, then thank goodness Deborah Manning is doing something about it. Deborah is, is a qualified lawyer and physiotherapist who founded Kiwi Harvest in 2012. The charity collects edible food destined for landfill and distributes it to food banks and social agencies to share with those who need it most. And Deborah joins us now. Thanks for coming along to this climate business, Deborah. Thanks for having me. When did you first hear about that number? It is an outrageous number, isn't it? And when, when did you first hear about it and what did it make you think? I guess it is an outrageous number and I suspect it is probably a low number to what is actually being uh, sent to landfill or not used to feed people in need. Um, I heard about it several years ago um, prior to or at the, about the same time that I was establishing Kiwi Harvest um, and I thought there must be a better way than sending something that is edible and nutritious to landfill. There must be a better way to get it back into the system and feed people in need. And so that's sort of this was the start of my journey. Mm. What were you doing at the time? Were you lawyering or were you physiotherapy? I was. Yes, I was working in a law firm uh, in Dunedin and I was teaching, uh, a little bit of teaching at the university uh, and, and really enjoying it. But I felt that there wasn't enough purpose and significance and community involvement in what I was doing. So I was um, looking for opportunities to give more back to my community and to really try and make a difference for the generations that are coming after me, my children and their children's children and so on. What did you first do? Well, well the first thing I did was... Um, have the idea. So the idea came about from reading a newspaper and seeing uh, an article about dumpster divers and how they were living off the food that was being thrown away by businesses. And on the same page was a story about uh, children going to school without breakfast or mm -hmm. um, the general problems of food insecurity on learning and health and well-being of, of New Zealanders. And I thought at the time, what if we took the problem of food being thrown away, um, dumpster diving, but also the environmental issues that go with food decomposing in landfill. And we took that edible food and we used it to solve the problem of uh, food insecurity in the community. And what would that look like? Um, and so from that initial idea, uh, it was fleshed out and I established the mechanism by which we would operate. 
Scrape, which was a charity, um, charitable entity, and set up a board. And then I just started collecting food from the back of my car. Um, and it wasn't until I got so much food in the back of my car that I had to take several trips and it was taking me all day just to get one lot of bread from an organization that I realized that this idea was going to work and that I needed to scale it up to be more resilient for our community and I um, applied for funding and hired people and got vans and and then we just took off from there. Awesome. Are you secretly a dumpster diver? I haven't ever dumpster dived, I have to confess. It's a very honourable pr- profession, if it could be a profession. My children do it, not that I'm um, dobbing them in, but um, you know, one of them who lives very lean in a very lean situation in Melbourne has, um, has fed himself through COVID through dumpster diving. It's, it's, it's an impressive amount of high-quality food that is being thrown out. What, what's wrong with the system, Deborah, that allows food still in its wrapping, still edible to be so disposed of? Yeah. Well, we we live in a society where we do handle things once and then we discard them. Uh, We're not good at doing what our grandparents used to do and having um, making things out of um, leftovers, for example, meals out of leftovers or repurposing Mm. something or recycling something. Um, With regard to food and supermarkets, you know, supermarkets often get um, labelled as the bad guys in this story, and and they're actually not. I think consumers have to really take some responsibility for lowering their expectations for the way food looks. So there Mm. is this expectation Mm. that that apples or oranges or bananas will be absolutely perfect and if they're not perfect they they won't buy them whereas in actual fact the banana with the freckle on the skin doesn't change the taste of the banana underneath it um and and same with apples and, and a small blemish on something it doesn't change the taste or the nutritional value of it so consumers do have a role to play in this whole crisis of food waste that we have in our country and we should just clarify that what you're talking about in terms of food being wasted is not food that's left over from people's homes and left on people's plates. This is packaged food or food in supermarkets that has ended its shelf life effectively and then has to be disposed of. I guess um, just tell us about then, you know, what what happens with your Tell us about Kiwi Harvest because I want to come back to the kind of the, the politics and the, you know, the business of food. But but you you work with the supermarkets, don't you? You have them on side. Um, what happens next when that thing comes off the shelf? Yeah, so so Kiwi Harvest collects food that's good enough to eat but not to sell, and redistributes it back into the community via social service agencies and food banks so that they can provide food support for people in need. Practically, what that looks like is supermarkets and um, uh, cafes and caterers and manufacturers and even growers put their food that is unable to be sold aside for kiwi harvest vans to collect. And our vans go to their premises collect from a designated spot this food that is good enough to eat but not to sell. And then we do two things with it. We bring it back to our warehouses where it is uh, divided up uh, into smaller lots and distributed to 
food banks um, and other agencies that come and collect it from us, or it is delivered directly to food, um, food, the food banks that are operating in the local community. And how do you ensure that it is edible? Well, we educate the uh, the donor, the food donor, so the supermarket staff and the bakeries and the cafes and so on. We educate them as to what food we can take and what we can't take. Um, so there are certain types of food that we don't take. We don't take rice-based products or chicken-based products. We don't take products that have been kept warm on buffets and things like that. That's all about mm. health, the health and safety of the food. Mm. Um, and, and our drivers are trained to inspect the food. Uh, they hold um, food safety certificates. We take, we take a great deal of care for, about the safety of the food. We transport it in um, refrigerated containers or, f- or trucks or freezer trucks. And when it gets to our warehouse, it's, it's put into chillers or freezers until it's ready to be distributed back out again. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. The supermarkets presumably are, at one level, you would say, are undermining their market by giving away food to to potential buyers. How did you reconcile that need for a business model that works for them? Well, because we're only taking food that's unable to be sold. We're not taking food that they can't sell. We believe that businesses should sell as much of their food as they possibly can. It's, it's the food that they cannot sell that is still good to eat, that is destined to be landfilled or uh, composted or sent to animal feed that we say we, we will come and collect and put it back into the community to feed people in need. The other thing that we do is we do ask these businesses um, if they would consider donating product as part of their um, corporate social responsibility programs. And many of them do simply donate um, pallets of product or boxes of product to us because they believe it's the right thing to do. COVID Mm. has shown us that, you know, there's goodness in a lot of the businesses to help nourish our um, needy in in the country. When you first started, what were the kind of conversations you had with supermarkets and cafes? Did you find a a ready acceptance or did you have to break down barriers? Yeah, that's a good question. I did have to break down barriers. There were common questions that they asked. The first one would be, uh, it's against the law, we're not allowed to do it. And the answer to Mm. that is no, it's not against the law. The law specifically provides for immunity of for food donors if they donate food believing in good faith that the food is safe and suitable at the time of donation um, and that the end consumer of the food um, will not have to pay for it so i could assure assure them that it's not against the law so that was that was a an easy hurdle to get over uh, next if, they would say well it'll thank goodness you were a lawyer to, to be able to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> The next question they would say is, well, it'll cut across our customer base if we give you food, just like you just asked now, Vincent. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I would say, well, well, no, because the the food that you're giving me and I'm passing on is not going to people who would normally come and shop and buy this food. These people don't have mm-hmm. enough money to come to the supermarket. So by providing them with food, you're allowing their weekly budget um, to be freed up somewhat and um, they may well then come in and spend it in your store or um, they may well be able to pay their doctor's bill. But it's not cutting across your customer base at all. The next question I got was people will bring the food back and ask for a refund. So it was all of these negative questions 
that I um, was getting. And I said, well, then we can uh, do two things. We could obliterate the barcodes if you wanted us to do that. That would be very time consuming. Or you could simply put in place a policy that said no receipt, no refund. Um, I'm really sorry to stop you there. Mid-flight, Deborah, I lost you. There was a break in the internet. I'm just going to ask that question again. Um, You you talked about, um, we might just pick it up from, uh, you you just finished a a sentence about uh, the the people who are not going to be buying food anyway, and then you were just about to talk about something that involved barcodes. Could you pick it up from there? Okay. And then the next question that uh, was commonly asked was that uh, people will bring the the food back to our store and ask for a refund. And, Mm. you know, that's a pretty reasonable question. So I said that there are two answers to that. The first one is we could obliterate the barcodes on all of the food that you donate, but that would be very time consuming. Or you could put in place a policy in your store that said no receipt, no refund. And so we got over that again. And those were pretty much the three issues that they had. Um, okay. And once we yeah. got over those, they were they were keen to get on board. And at the distribution end, uh, so you, you presumably were welcomed by the agencies that is just distributing food or or not, you know, what was the what was it like at the that was you know talked about the supply side or what about the demand side? Yeah, the demand side was is huge and was huge and will always be huge. I think um, the biggest issue that I faced in the early stages was that the agencies that we were supplying food to weren't set up to receive perishable food. So Kiwi Harvest is about mostly about collecting perishable foods, although we do a lot more ambient now than we used to. But in the beginning, it was very much um, fruit, vegetables, milk, dairy, um, ready meals, sandwiches, and things like that. And well, that's the agencies, brave, actually, isn't it? I mean, that that is a brave um, stance to take because you you're having to shift that stuff in hours. That's correct. It's, it's much more complicated than the ambient or dry stock product, which is mm-hmm. – um, that system is working very well, and we don't really go into that much with the uh, with the supermarkets because they have their own systems and their own bins that they use. Um, but the perishable food requires a great deal of attention to detail, and, and as you say, it moves very quickly. So within 24 hours, food that comes in is out and usually in the homes of the people who need it. So the, the problem I had with the, the agencies that I was delivering the food to was that they weren't set up to receive it. So I might say to them, um, I've been given uh, half a pallet of milk and it's got five days left on it can you take it? And they'd say, yes. I'd say, well, how much can you take? And they'd go, as much as you can give us. And when I get there with my half a pallet of milk, they only had one small half-sized fridge. And so yeah. you know, there was all of that sort of system infrastructure that had to be worked out with them in order to take all of the perishable food. But we got there in the end. And uh, what are we now, eight years on from founding? Tell us about the scale of it. I see that you're operating in at, at least four cities, maybe five. Yes, yeah, so so we started in Dunedin, and then after a couple of years, we were asked to come to Auckland to establish there with seed funding from uh, Goodman Foundation. 
which we did. And from there, we opened a hub on the North Shore because driving from where we are in South Auckland over to the North Shore was taking too long. Um, you know, we were wasting too much time uh, just driving there and back and not actually doing the work. So we we were really lucky to have the Rotary Club on the North Shore help us fund setting up a hub over there. Uh, then we established a collaborative operation in Hawke's Bay with a local frontline agency called Nourish Vanille there. And then we established a Queenstown branch uh, last year in collaboration at the time with Sustainable Queenstown. Um, we find that if we go somewhere and collaborate with an on-the-ground organisation, uh, it's much more impactful because they know their local scene, they know what's happening in their mm. local community. Mm. We can come in with our trucks to help them um, and we can ship food down to them and or transport food down to them, but they know what's right for their community and it always works well when we can collaborate in that way. So now we deliver food to 242 organisations around the country through those branches. Now's as good a time as any to interrupt this interview with a wee promotion. That's right, it's an ad, but I promise it will be relevant to you and won't take a minute. On November the 11th and 12th, there'll be the 2020 Climate Change and Business Conference at the Aotea Centre in Auckland. You could register now to attend in person or by live stream. The event's probably the most important gathering of climate-related business leaders, politicians, scientists and general troublemakers in New Zealand. It's run by the Environmental Defence Society and is in its 19th year. The theme this year is Redefining Our Future, which I guess is no surprise because it's using the COVID recovery to ask how do we lead with the level of ambition and hope that the climate crisis requires of us and future generations deserve from us. As I said, you can register for this event to either attend in person or by live stream, and you can do that at this website, climateandbusiness.com. Or if you want to know more about the conference, you could visit my webpage, thisclimatebusiness.com, to see more. Right, I told you it would be short. Back to the show. I suspect that COVID has increased the demand for your services. Can you give us a sense of how COVID has changed things? Yes. Um, so, so the COVID pandemic really complicated um, the whole challenge nationally and globally to reduce food waste throughout the whole value chain. It exposed, I guess, um, the sort of the weaknesses that were inherent in the food supply chain. And when I talk about the food supply chain, I'm talking about from growing right through to um, picking, to transporting, to manufacturing, to wholesalers, retailers, consumers. So if you think about how the food travels during its life. Um, and so it exposed all of these weaknesses. What we, we don't have quantitative data yet, but what we do know just from what we've been reading in the media and from um, anecdotal data is that we had farmers that were ploughing vegetables back into their into the ground because they couldn't harvest it. Um, we had livestock that was having to be culled. I don't know whether you're aware, but during COVID, MPI stepped in and um, purchased pork from the pork industry. Um, and asked Kiwi Harvest to distribute it around the country because of an animal welfare crisis due to um, 
due to the, all of the restaurants closing down and the hospitality sector closing down. Wow. Um, we had uh, we've got we had issues with meat processing plants because of the social distancing rules. Half only half the people could be on the line because the mm. distances had to be between them. Food rescues and other distribution centres like food banks. Um, they lost their volunteer workforce because they're primarily um, older people. Uh, they still, most of them continued working, or the, the larger ones continued working, um, but they had a com- very depleted workforce. So the, the, they had to work you know, really hard uh, to keep themselves going uh, with a very small um, amount of people to do that. And some of the smaller ones, uh, community food organisations just had to close down because of um, the lockdown and level three restrictions. Then, of course, at the same time, you've got all this unemployment due to the um, pandemic-induced recession. That then increases the number of people in need. And so it just kind of goes on and on and round and round. And <laughs> Um, and has that resolved itself now? Uh, I presume you know we've back at work um, on the on the supply side on that on the sort of manufacturing distribution side. Is that in better shape now? Uh, well, we're still getting large amounts of food through our warehouses. Um, so. And I think people's shopping habits have gone back to normal. The supermarkets during the lockdown period and level three periods were completely stripped of food, you'll remember. Mm. People just went in and went panic buying. So food rescues didn't get a lot of food to pass on to the community. But I think that's slowly coming back now. People are getting back into their habits um, of being a bit uh, fussy about the food that they buy. But what has happened is that... uh, there has been this great opportunity uh, to try and fix the food system. And um, and we've seen uh, lots of new uh, funding from government and lots of new organisations begin to establish themselves in response to the, the sort of the issues that we experienced during COVID. And that's a really exciting space to be. And one of those is the New Zealand Food Network, which which we set up to support Kiwi Harvest food banks, iwi, and things like that. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. it's an exciting time. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah, great. Tell, tell us more about the New Zealand Food Network. Well, the New Zealand Food Network is um, is it was an idea that I've had for a couple of years, and and that was that we needed aggregation points in North Island and the South Island where bulk food could be collected and then distributed to support uh, food hubs or food rescue organisations, other charities, food banks, iwi and things like that. So this was, this was something that would collect pallets of food, not just boxes of food. Um, so I had been trying very hard to get funding for that and um, was having some success, but it, but it it was a big project. And then when we went into lockdown, we were contacted by uh, some, some of the people in government that we'd been speaking to who said, uh, remember that idea that you pitched to us? We think we might need that now. Um, can you tell us more about it? And so during a... Uh, few months period while we were all 
lockdown in our homes um, and not being able to go to work as we would normally do, we built the New Zealand Food Network with government funding from the wellbeing budget. And now we have a warehouse in Auckland and a facility in Christchurch. And we collect food from uh, our foundational food donors, which are Fonterra and Turners and Growers and Sanitarium and a whole lot of other food donors comes into this warehouse in pallets, so 20 or 30 pallets at a time, maybe more. And from there, it is distributed around the country and mixed pallet loads. So you're not just giving one whole pallet load of carrots to someone, you're giving them a quarter of a um, pallet of um, carrots, some potatoes, some sanitary wheat bix, and some Fonterra um, long life milk, something like that. So it becomes more of a mixed supply of food. And we're still talking about charitable donations here. You're not talking about setting up a new, an alternative grocery chain. No, it's not an alternative grocery chain. At the moment, it's 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 either surplus or unable, unable to be sold, um, short-dated stock. Um, however, with the case of, um, say, Sanitarium, it is pure donations of wheat bix, pallets of wheat bix being given to the New Zealand Food Network to distribute around the country because they want to be part of strengthening the health and well-being of people in the country. So it's stuff that they could sell, but they're choosing not to sell it. They're choosing to give us a, give it away. This is probably a very good moment. I know you didn't ask me to do this, but it does make me think you, this is probably a very good moment to tell us about who supports you, who, what brands uh, have been helpful to you in this exercise? Uh, well, there are, there are probably too many to to talk about all of them. But uh, I think if people want to look on the Kiwi Harvest website and the, and the New Zealand Food Network websites, and we can give them th those um, those links at the end of the program, they'll see all of the organisations that support us. But in terms of um, Kiwi Harvest, we have supporters that in the um, – in the sort of the restaurant uh, supermarket industry, so the countdowns and um, and foodstuffs for food. Um, we also have uh, great financial relationships, financial support relationships with um, Rabobank and Subway and councils um, and various foundations. Mm -hmm. We also have so we get food from. So many different agencies, um, from really small ones to to larger ones. In terms of the network, um, I mentioned our foundational um, food donors, TNG Fresh, Sanitarium, Fonterra, um, but we also get food from Air New Zealand, uh, Countdown, um, and other small, um, smaller uh, agencies that that uh, give us one off or, or commit to giving a monthly donation as well. Has this exercise made you reflect on uh, uh, the politics and the, the nature of the system? You know, what, what is so broken about a system that produces so much wasted <coughs> food? I mean, is there too much food being produced for the size of the market? That's an interesting question. Um, the thing about food waste is that it is huge. I mean, can we just talk for a minute about the scale of the problem of food waste? Yeah, because please do. Because it's huge. So, I mean, a third of all food is lost or wasted between farm and fork. 
um, a third. I mean, that's just absurd, really. Um, <laughs> and, but you can, you can look at, yeah, yeah, and you can look at food waste through sort of three lenses. The first one is the food security lens, which we've been talking about. Um, uh, so we live in a world, a world now where one in nine people are undernourished. That's in the world. Um, in New Zealand, we talk about one in five people facing food insecurity, with Murray and Pacifica mm. being the hardest hit. Mm. And we need to be making more of the food that we grow and produce. So from a food security point of view, the fact that um, one billion tonnes of food never gets consumed and why, and we've got, and that's in the world, and we've got one in nine people undernourished. The fact that, you know, you quoted at the beginning, 103,000 tonnes of food is being thrown away when we've got, in New Zealand, when we've got 103,000 tonnes, yeah, when we've got one in five people facing food insecurity is, is just unacceptable. So that's the first lens, the food insecurity lens. Mm. The second lens is the economic cost of food waste. So globally, uh, food waste is approximately, amounts to approximately $940 billion each year, food that's wasted. And in New Zealand, the average family in their homes throws out three shopping loads of trolley, three shopping trolleys of food each week. That's from the Love Food Hate Waste um, survey that was done. That equates to 644 Dollars. Sorry, not each week, each year. So three shopping trolleys of food each year. Um, so re if we reduce food waste, we save money it's for the per, farmers. Sorry, um, Deborah, does that per household, did you say? Per household. The average family throws out three shopping trolleys of food each year, equating to $644, according to Love Food Hate Waste. I'm just um, thinking about how much I hate going to the grocery store. So that's three times I need, didn't need to go if I was more efficient with my, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with my buying and my eating. And, uh, and so also there, there has been an international study done uh, that says that any business that puts in, um, that introduces mechanisms to reduce food loss and waste will have a 14 return 14-fold return on that investment. So that might be they they need they can avoid buying more food, they can increase the amount of food that gets sold, producing financial return, they reduce their waste management costs. So from an economic point of view, it doesn't make sense to be throwing mm. all of this food away. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, the third lens is the environmental lens. And so we know that food waste generates greenhouse gases, including methane, when it ends up in landfill. Mm, um, mm. And, and we know that 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions are caused by food waste. You will have heard before um, that if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of gas behind China and um and the US of greenhouse gas. Oh, I actually haven't heard that before, so that's that's incredible, and it's just worth restating. Go on. Okay, so if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse emitter behind China and the US. And that uh, comes from the Food and Agricultural Organization. Mm. So there's a lot of work to do, and you are still laughing. What? You, it must have made you angry at one point, and you've... 
obviously turn that anger into action. But has it changed your thinking about the way the system is working or not working? I, I think what it's made me, it hasn't made me angry. It's made me, um, it's made me determined uh, to make the most of the opportunity that presents itself because we can solve this problem. Uh, and it can be done. And for the first time, the government has stepped up and stepped into this issue and realised that food waste is a problem, but it can be solved and there are things that we can do. Um, and so I'm, I'm heartened by that. Uh, mm. I, there is so much to do, but there are so many people out there that want to do it. And, of course, now um, we are seeing this whole new attitude towards waste don't don't you think people people are going well i i don't feel comfortable about throwing that in the landfill um there must be another way that i can use this or um, somebody else might be able to use this and so we're getting all of these innovative ideas uh popping up and new businesses popping up to to actually recycle or reuse waste across all streams I think you're right about this. Um, you know, this is not isolated to the food industry. Uh, similar kind of dynamics are happening in the construction industry where um, something like, a th again, a third of waste happens um, before uh, they're already built into the building of a, of a skyscraper before it's even the foundations go on. Something like... Um, uh, I, well, I've heard a, th a third is already built in, a third of waste is already built into the design of that building just through mistakes, through miscalculations, through um, ordering the wrong materials, through change of plans. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a, uh, a identification of waste in every industry. Uh, I wonder if there are any commonalities between them in the way that, for instance, planning is done. Uh, uh, have you had any thoughts about from a manufacturing side of things, you know, how do we get better signals back to farmers and growers and manufacturers to, to align that with demand? Um, look, no, this isn't my area of expertise at all. Um, I do feel for the farmers. Um, the, the, one of the problems that the farmers have is that there's no incentives for them to harvest food that they don't have a market for, that they've grown to contract for. And so um, we need to find better ways to incentivize them to actually harvest that product because we don't want them to have to take a financial hit to harvest something just to donate it or not just to donate it, but, you know, to, to donate it away to mm. us. Um, there needs to be some sort of way that we can find um, some some mechanism by which they aren't going to lose out financially to harvest crops that they are unable to sell. In terms of the manufacturers, there's always ways that you can improve systems. And you'll find that a lot of manufacturers now, uh, and a lot of businesses, are actually bringing in their own sustainability teams um, uh, to either work in-house or to come in as contractors and look at all their systems and help them with that. So that's, that's really encouraging, I think. Mm. It's almost like there needs to be the next wave, doesn't there? I mean, we, we probably are within living memory know what it's like to live with hunger and insufficient food my, my grandparents lived and my parents lived through the war where there just was not enough food we now seem to have a, a different problem where there's almost too much food but the problems 
with distribution and as you say the, the, the kind of consumer expectations about what food needs to be does there need to be a kind of a, th- a third wave about um, figuring out how to you know sort of get getting supply and demand uh, better aligned isn't it well it's also about cost too uh, you know, if if you um, if we find out why people are unable to feed themselves, the majority of them will say that the cost of living is so high that they don't mm. have enough money left over in their food budget because the food budget is the discretionary budget. Everything else, uh, all the other things are usually fixed costs or costs that must be paid when they come up like doctor's bills. Um, so the food budget is often the one that gets dipped into to pay those bills that that are coming due. So, uh, you know, it's the cost of living that's really hard and um, on people and causing food insecurity for the most part, for the majority of people. Mm. Uh, Deborah, um, you've been doing this for eight years now and you've, you've it's clearly growing and it's working. You've got a CEO um, running the enterprise. What's next for you? Uh, for me, we've got a CEO running um, the enterprise and we've got a general manager for Kiwi Harvest who's doing a great job expanding all of our branches around the country. Uh, for me, for me, my job, I still work in the business um, and, and have a lot of input into it, but I, I do most of the stakeholder engagement. So talking to you about these issues and um, talking to people in government about how you know we think we could start shifting the conversations to create better outcomes. Um, I like to go and speak to employees of the um, businesses that support us and tell them why their business that they're working for is doing great in the community and, and all of that sort of thing. Mm. That's where my passion lies at the moment. And and the, the task is uh, the harvest is full, if you excuse the pun. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, it's a busy time. Um, Deborah, it's been really delightful talking to you, and um, and you know we really appreciate the um, the efforts that you and your team are doing around this. We'd love to have you back on the show in some time when um, you know. Uh, so if if you're available, we would like to stay in touch, and uh, we wish you all the best for uh, for this coming year. Thank you, thank you. It's very nice to talk to you, Vincent. Thanks for listening to this climate business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.